Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. Uh, first of all, before we begin, for those of you who haven't been here before, we do have restrooms back through those doors. We have the men's and women's back there, and we have one more if you go through there and turn left. So in the back, back here, and then the sides back here. And, uh, oh yeah, make sure you turn your phones off. It's a good reminder. So do you remember last week when we were talking about the manna in the desert? So we were talking about the manna in the desert, and I said, I said, well, I think it's like insect saliva or something like that, and everyone freaked out on me. Well, anyway, I was kind of right. But there are a couple different, uh, couple different ways that that worked. So there, there is also a, a tree that produces something that looks a little bit like, they said like coriander seed and like a mix between that. But then they also talk about what they call honeydew. And honeydew isn't honey, you need to do that. But apparently, I didn't, ever, I didn't actually know that's what it was called, but honeydew is uh, like when insects are uh, kind of, well, doing their thing, chewing on something. They kind of produce uh, a little bit of a saliva and uh, it actually is edible, and apparently it tastes pretty good. So, not really in our culture, I know, but but anyhow. So that was something, but apparently there is also a tree. Well, that would be the miracle, that, that even if there were these naturally occurring things that do, that do naturally occur in the desert... Uh, that looks somewhat like bread, and like in other descriptions, they say it's like coriander seed. Um, but um, there wouldn't be the quantity necessary to feed um, even moderately large groups of people. So the idea there, even if it is naturally occurring, that God had to work with that, and kind of like the multiplication of loaves and fishes, you know, it's that sort of thing going on. Okay, so we'll start with our opening prayer, and we'll get right to it. So, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So, Lord, we give you thanks for your word to us, the many ways that you speak to us. Also, on this feast of the guardian angels, and how you speak to us through the angels, we give you thanks for your creation, the fullness of it, and how we have a share in that as well. We ask you to bless us here tonight, and open our hearts and minds so that we can understand you just a little bit more, to not just understand uh, some of the details, but understand the meaning, the reason, and how you speak to us and why. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to start, because I've got a long way to go in the next uh, nine hours. So I'm going to start with the uh, beginnings of the monarchy. And uh, it starts with 1 and 2 Samuel. And so just to recap, you all know that that we didn't really get that far through the Old Testament yet. My, my theory was I wanted you to be well-grounded in the basics and in the beginning because 
once you get the gist of that, it, it really helps everything else fall into place a little bit. So anyway, that's my theory. I don't know in practice if that's going to work for you, but that's my theory. So we're going to get um, straight into this. All right, there's in 1 and 2 Samuel, both of those books are talking about how the monarchy came to be, how it started, and what the institution of the monarchy is and what God intended. And there are two different themes that actually have, I don't know if you've picked up on it up to this point, but one theme is God is king and we don't need a human king like all the rest. Because God is king, we can have judges who will rise to the occasion if they need to. But since God is king, we don't want a human king as well. But then there was another thread that, that came through that. And that was this, this thread that, in subtle ways, talking about how God may produce a king. And uh, some of those examples that we see is like with the younger son who becomes uh, more important than the elders. Kind of like in symbolic of King David, who was the younger son who became, you know, the king. Also, it was the the thread that happens in there where it talks about um, those who are powerless and weak and how God makes them strong. And uh, so we see that also in the monarchy. But at the same time, there is this conflict. And the way that it gets resolved in 1 and 2 Samuel, at least, is it gets resolved with this understanding that it wasn't God's intention to have a king, but the people whined so much that God gave in. And then even though it wasn't really what he wanted at the time, he used that and made it something great. But if you think about it, this happens quite a bit. There are these things like, for example, there's David and Bathsheba. Obviously, God didn't want adultery, but the son of David and Bathsheba would be Solomon. And that would be the one that God would choose to be the king following King David. So he can take a situation and he can make it, even if it started on the wrong foot, he can turn that around and make it something that serves his will. And and you just have to think of all the different stories that you'll see in the Bible. and, And that's another pattern that shows up from time to time. Okay, so let's go to the beginning here. So if you look at this section, the... First and second Samuel, I think right here I've got first Samuel. We've got a division where the judgeship of Samuel, Samuel was the priest in the Philistine oppression. Philistines, they were on the southwest coast area of Israel, and they were coming up into the areas of Canaan or Israel at this time, and they were making war with the Israelites. For a while, the judges would be raised up just enough to suppress that, and the Israelites would continue on, but it was a constant uh, struggle for them to be dealing with. And so this was the beginning of showing why a king was going to come into place. Chapters 8 through 15, it's the institution of the human kings and the eventual rejection of Saul. So David wasn't the first king. Actually, it was... King Saul was the first one that was chosen. There was another one um, before that, but he wasn't really a king. So this is the start. God chooses Saul. He becomes consecrated. He becomes the first king, but then later on, God rejects him. And then after that, David would get raised up. So it's going to tell that story as well. Then you've got 
The early history of David, he was first favored and later persecuted by Saul. Well, Saul, rightfully so, saw David as a threat. And because of that, over time, although he started out good, over time he saw that that David was a threat to his kingdom, so he wanted to do him in. And actually, at some point, actually started trying to hunt him down. But as we know, David became the king over Judah after the death of Saul. And then David became the king over all of Israel. And he centered the kingship in Jerusalem, which was a very small city at that point. But it was uh, Jerusalem has is, is got a location where it takes the northern tribes and the southern tribes, and it's able to be somewhat of a unified center in a sense. So it was really uh, a bit of a strategic move as well. Then uh, later there's some appendix containing uh, different documents about David, so that's toward the end. Okay, so this is the very beginning. You've got this story about Hannah, and Hannah who was barren. Remember the barren woman? The barren woman theme. So it's a woman who is not able to give birth, but then God blesses her and she gives birth. Um, that, by the way, is also symbolic of Israel. That with God's help, although she is barren, Israel is barren with God's help, she becomes fruitful. And so, so that, whole, uh, that whole idea of the, uh, um, the, the woman who is barren, who gives birth, is symbolic of Israel as well. You've got Eli... And you've got Samuel. Do you all remember in uh, that story with, with Eli's kind of up in years and Samuel's in the temple and, and uh, Samuel, Samuel, and he runs to Eli and, and uh, said, did you call me? And then finally he says, he goes, no, I didn't call you. But then finally he says, yes, I did call you. No, I didn't call you. But, but when you hear that, say back to the Lord, here I am, Lord. And so this is when Samuel becomes you know, called to be a prophet as well. We talked a little bit about prophets. We'll talk a little bit more a little later on. But Eli and Samuel are within that um, role of prophet. Also, you're going to hear about the Ark of the Covenant. So this is a, a picture of the Ark. And you'll notice the two poles that they would carry it with. And then you've got, this is the mercy seat up on top here. And you've got these winged cherubim up top that the the wings kind of touch at the side. And traditionally, they would say that the Ark of the Covenant had the Ten Commandments, the second set of the Ten Commandments in it. Um, After the fall of the temple, then the Ark didn't have anything in it. So after the 587, when the Babylonians uh, sacked the city and then they rebuilt it when the Persians let them go back, then they rebuilt the temple and they had a new Ark of the Covenant, but that... Uh, Ark didn't have anything in it after that point. It was raided. All right, so here's the heavenly dialogue. Okay, Israel says, we want a king. Because remember, the Philistines were, were constantly making war with the Israelites. And so they wanted a king, not just so that they could have laws, but so that there would be some organization. The king, it was always understood, would have to lead the battle. So a king would be the one who would round up the troops, and he would also be um, kind of like the general in a sense, but he would always lead the battle. In the ancient world, it was very common, actually, that, that when, a, when any tribe or country went to war, the king always was in the forefront of the war. And so that was, for military reasons, they wanted a king to help fight with the Philistines. 
And then they said, we want a king. Also, the Canaanites had kings and the Philistines had kings and the Egyptians had Pharaoh. And, you know, so they were looking around them and they were saying everyone else has kings. But then God says, I am your king. I am your leader. You don't need a general. I will be your general. So this is what God's saying back to the people through the prophet. And then Israel says, but we want a king. Everyone else has a king. Kind of like kids do, right? Everyone else has, name it, iPhone, I don't know. So then afterwards, God says, you know what this means, right? And so, so the prophet is telling the people, look, your kids are going to be drawn up. Your, your daughters are going to be taken into the king's court. Um, you're going to be taxed. You know, so he's given all the reasons why, look, you guys, you really don't want a king. And what do the people say? We want a king. So anyway, so we want a king like everyone else. So God basically says, okay, but you're not going to like it. You know, and actually at this time, uh, uh, the prophet Samuel is like, well, it's like they rejected me. And, and God's like, no, they didn't reject you. They rejected me. You know, basically his will wasn't followed. But as we'll see that God will use this to bring about his will. And so uh, there is a bit of a lesson in there as well. And that is that, as I mentioned before, even when people start off on the wrong foot, that God can still take that situation and bring about good through it, which is good for us, right? Because we're all starting off on the wrong foot and God can still use us. Okay, so it's also you'll notice that oftentimes in the Old Testament, there's this this description of how God repents or God was angry or God um, changed his heart, you know, and this sort of thing. Uh, keep in mind that, that there's a, a bit of an anthropomorphic description of God a lot of times, especially in the beginning. And it's not that they didn't know that God was spirit or anything like that, but it's the way they describe things. And remember how I talked about when, when you look about the nuances of, of theology, in the beginning it wasn't quite there yet. And so they would say things like, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Because nothing happens unless God allows it to happen. So therefore, God must have done it. You know, later on, uh, they, they tend to nuance that a little bit. But they always believed in free will. But they also believe that God is all-powerful. Now, how they put those two together, um, sometimes it, it worked out differently. But anyway, don't be surprised when you hear these things like, you know, God had a change of mind and God repented and he felt bad that he ever did, you know, this sort of thing. It's just bringing a human characteristic to God so the people could understand. All right. Let's get rid of that. Let's look at Saul. Okay, Saul was a Benjaminite. So uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was a, a very small and insignificant tribe. Uh, Saul was considered, and his family actually, uh, was, was somewhat upper middle class for that time. They were somewhat well off. And when God called Saul at first, he didn't really want to do it. And he was trying to talk his way out of it. No, I'm from the smallest tribe and I'm most significant. And, you know, he's, he's actually kind of being a little humble about it. But uh, God calls him anyway. Saul is concentra- consecrated by Samuel. And so what they would do with prophets is they would consecrate them with oil. So like even today, for example, when we have ordinations and things like that, we use like chrism oil. Or when we're 
baptizing adults or babies will use a chrism. That oil um, goes back to its roots with that type of uh, uh, consecration that would happen with kings and with prophets. And I'll talk a little later about those two roles. You have a prophet and a king, and and they served, in in a sense, almost like checks and balances for, for for the kingship and the monarchy. But both of them were consecrated positions. That's why in the uh, Middle Ages, for example, they had this almost understanding where the kings tried to say, well, hey, I'm consecrated king. And so therefore, that's a sacrament. And the church said, well, it's great you're consecrated, but it's not a sacrament. You know, but that goes back to this idea when kings and prophets uh, were consecrated. They would take a scented oil and, and just consecrate them. Okay, so Saul doesn't follow Samuel's instructions completely. And because of that, he pays the price. We we all know that it's almost depressing when you're reading about Saul because it almost seems like the poor guy can't get a break. You know, it's like, well, he's trying. It almost seems like he's trying, but he just makes some, he makes some really bad mistakes and decisions in the process. And it just, it shows, at first it seems like he's going to be the one. He's the most handsome and he's tall and he's a warrior and he's, you know, got some charisma um, but then as time goes on, you can tell that, that he's turning more and more into disfavor in front of God and his people. And the other thing that happened is he's becoming more and more, more, and more paranoid, especially about David. And so that's going to be his downfall. There was uh, one section actually with this of uh, Witch of Endor. How many of you ever uh, have seen Bewitched? All right. This just means you're all at least as old as I am, right? Because what was that? That was in the 60s, I think. Well, do you remember, do you remember Samantha's mom's name? Endora, right? The Witch of Endor. Anyway, I'm, I'm sure that's where they got the name. So what's interesting, though, is Saul forbid divination and necromancy and all those, those uh, occultic practices and, uh, and the pagan practices that the Canaanites especially were doing around them. And one of the things they used to do is they had this mentality that, that those who died would go like under the earth to this place like that Sheol, that Hades kind of thing I was talking about. So this was the common perception. And so one of the things that the witches used to do when they would try to divine and channel um, dead spirits is they would dig a hole in the ground. Because symbolically, remember the dead spirits are underneath, right? So they dig a hole in the ground and then they would pour oil or wine into the hole And the idea is that the people might be hungry and they can come up and get the wine and the oil. So it's symbolic, of course, but this is kind of what she's doing. So she's doing that and all of a sudden here comes Eli, or was it Samuel? Eli. And and then he tries to give, um, Saul is trying to use that to get the information that he needs, but he shouldn't have done that. And he outlawed it, but for some reason they had no problem finding one, which gives you some indication about how well they were listening to him in the first place. You know, so the other thing that he did wrong is he made, he offered a sacrifice. He was waiting for the prophet to show up to offer sacrifice or the priests. He was waiting for them to show up to give sacrifice. But then when he didn't show, he's like, well, we're waiting, we're waiting. We have to go to war. We got to get this done. So he did it himself. And for that, uh, Samuel basically chewed him out pretty well. So it was, it was this kind of ongoing thing that, you know, Saul is going more and more downhill. And at the same time, David is starting to be raised up. Okay. 
So look at the rise of David. So David is anointed. And another thing you'll see in, in scripture a lot is this description of people. And he was handsome. He was ruddy. I mean, they have these, these almost like uh, descriptions of people. And, and, and it shows that if you're the handsome person or if you're, you know, the person that stands out, that, that maybe in some way you have been chosen or favored by God. But it, they do kind of talk about this. He's the youngest. He's got fine eyes. He's attractive. And he's ruddy. And uh, ruddy, I think they were trying to say it means kind of reddish or something like that. So, so maybe he was the first Scotch person that lived down in Israel. Red hair. I don't know. But we don't know. It just kind of gives a little bit of a description. And you remember at first, David was not with the other brothers. And then is... As they're looking for him, it's like, where, you know, where, where is your, uh, that's not the one, that's not the one. They kept bringing more and more until finally um, they, they go out and get him and he's out with the sheep, you know, and bringing him back in. But we have the story of David and Goliath and that's kind of the beginning where he shows himself as being a military uh, leader, someone who's courageous in war. In addition to that, he also must have had some kind of charisma because he very easily brought people around him. Not only did he bring people around him, but even when he was being chased out by Saul, he went down into the Philistine territory, talked them into hiring him so he could be one of their warriors. And then afterwards, went back to Israel and then started over in Israel. So he went to the enemy and talked them, hey, I got an idea. Why don't I fight for you? And they're like, you know what? Okay. Just kind of seems hard to believe. So he must have had some kind of charisma. Anyway, he was militarily astute and he was politically astute. You can see that with his decision making, who he married, what he did, the city that he, the city that he decided that he was going to bring the monarchy to, all these had very good, strong military and political reasons as well as religious reasons. Okay, after he comes back into Israel, he becomes crowned as king, Saul dies, and so he gets the north and the south to agree to have him as king. And this is the first time that Israel has been united, north and south, with all the 12 tribes, and also with the monarch. Okay, so this is the beginning of the fullness of that promise of the area of Israel being fulfilled as well as the monarch being in control of the area. And that's why, to this day, Jews will talk about King David almost as like the golden era. And it's the time that, that from that point on, all other kings would be judged on whether they were like David or not like David. Uh, I'll give you a little uh, premonition here, but most of them weren't like David. But if you read First, Chronic, First and Second Chronicles, they'll talk about, and then there was this king, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He was not like David, you know, but they were in the line of David. So the point was, they should have at least had those good qualities that David had. And primarily, that would be the um, Yahwistic worship, and then having a heart after God. It doesn't mean David didn't sin. Obviously, he did, and we've got something on that uh, coming up here in a little bit. So he captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And then at that point, he made that the center. Then you've got the Bathsheba. 
And then you've got the sin, adultery, and murder because he took Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, and, and after trying to lure him to, uh, to sleep with Bathsheba so that she was pregnant at the time so that he would think that that was uh, his kid. Instead, he wouldn't do it for reasons which we'll explain a little later. But then later David sends him into the front lines and then tells the generals to pull back so that he would be killed. You know, so he's a murderer, he's an adulterer. There wasn't much that David didn't do. You know, but he did know how to repent. You got to hand it to the guy. You know, and so, so there's another good thread that you see in the Bible. It's someone who repents from the heart, no matter what they do, God takes them back. It doesn't mean there aren't consequences. Uh, the consequences would come about a little later with his son, Absalom, who tries to rebel against David and then, and then take over the kingdom. And so in the end, Absalom ends up dying. They, well, it's kind of a story is kind of odd. He's on a horse and he's running and his hair gets caught in the tree. And then someone else sees him hanging from his hair and then, and then kills him and cuts off his head. So it's kind of a gruesome story, but you can almost see it's written in a way that's, that's like gruesome, but a little humorous in a weird way. So, okay. So here's some, uh, let's talk about that Bathsheba thing. So, so here's David and he's, He's at home in Jerusalem, and he's on the, the rooftop, and then he looks over, and there's Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. Now, here's the question that most people don't ask is, what's David doing at home? Because they're at war, right? And because they're at war, he should be leading the war, and he should be with the soldiers. And it's the afternoon. So here you are, daytime, afternoon, a war's going on, and he's not there. So it gives some indication that, that David's slacking off. He's not doing what a king is supposed to do at that time. So he's not fighting the Ammonites. And then there's always a question. Now, did Bathsheba know that David was home? We don't know. You know what? They leave these kind of questions open-ended. How many of you ever saw that movie? It was like the, the movie called David and... I saw it, but... Yeah, it was funny. There's some things I liked about it and some things I didn't. But, but anyway, in this movie, she's kind of like bathing, you know. But, <laughs> but we don't really know. So all we know is what it says is that, that she was bathing and he, was, he saw her and he wanted her. So he sent someone to go get her. Now here's another question. So if you have people from the king that come to you and say the king wants to see you, can you refuse him? Probably not, you know, so, so this idea that Bathsheba was a little seductionist and all this kind of stuff and David was innocent is a little bit of wishful thinking. You know, you can see that he's not quite doing what he's supposed to do, even in these beginning stages. So she gets pregnant. Well, yeah, he, she does come. They lie together. She gets pregnant. And then afterwards she comes to David and says, I'm pregnant. So why does she say I'm pregnant? Obviously, she wanted him to do something. We're not exactly sure what she wanted David to do. You know, some people say, well, she wanted David to do something with Uriah, or, you know, maybe they worked out a, a plan or who knows what. But at that point, he came up, and, and they put a little detail in there as well. It's, it's introduced where she is purifying herself after completing her menstrual cycle. So they knew that the baby was his. You know, because she was pregnant after that time. 
So David recalls Uriah, Uriah the Hittite. He's a, he's a warrior, but he's a mercenary warrior from up north. Uh, the Hittites is like modern uh, uh, central south Turkey. And that would be the Hittite empire at the time. And so David recalls Uriah and says, you know what? Why don't you go wash your feet? All right. So what does that mean? Huh? It's not go to the bathroom. That's cover your feet. But you think maybe it's related somehow? Wash your feet. Basically, go back to your wife and have sex with her. You know? The word feet means genitalia in kind of a roundabout way. I can't tell you why, but it does. So anyway, yeah, he... So David sends Uriah back. And then what does Uriah do? (laughs) He goes, nah, I can't do that. We're at war. He goes, I can't sleep with my wife. There was this idea that when you're at war, then you have to stay pure and holy and you have to make those sacrifices in a way because it's the, the war also looked at was looked at almost like holy war. And so there were certain prescriptions you had to follow that go back uh, to the book of Leviticus, for example. They had some of those uh, part of that holiness code. And so part of it was Uriah knew that when we're at war and I'm supposed to be fighting, I can't have sex with my wife. So I am going to be the good Jew, even though I'm not Jewish. While David, who is Jewish and who is the king and the anointed one of God, breaks all the rules. So do you see the, the irony in that? Okay, so then we know how this went. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He commits adultery and then murder. Okay, so anyway, Uriah dies. David, I think to some degree, he probably thinks I got away with it. But he's not the only one who figured it out. It seems there was a prophet named Nathan who figured it out as well. So Nathan does this thing. He's called, David, I got this great story for you. I know you sing and write psalms and stuff, but I got a story for you. There was this guy that had this little lamb, and, you know, he loved that little lamb. And uh, the lamb was all cute and everything. And, and then all of a sudden, someone else came in and killed that lamb. You know, what do you think should happen? And, of course, David's outraged. You know, oh, whoever killed that lamb should be, you know, he should be killed. And goes on and on. And then Nathan points at him and says, you are that one. You know, because Uriah, his little lamb was, uh, uh, was Bathsheba. And so David did that. So basically, Nathan tells a parable. Now, you know other people told parables, right? Like Jesus, you ever heard of that guy? He told parables, right? So Jesus didn't begin the genre of parables. You'll see him in the Old Testament as well. And this is one of the best examples of a parable. You tell a story that has a main point. And someone who listens to a parable, they don't analyze the details so much. What they're trying to do is to understand the main point. Once you understand the main point, you have to act. That's the, that's the reason for a parable. It's not just to um, convict, but it means you have to do something. And so after this parable, David knows he has to do something. And so he goes and he repents. And he repents from the heart and he does a good job repenting. You know, but... God's judgment does come back and bite him because then you have the rebellion that happens with Absalom. Absalom not only tries to take over his his, uh, father's kingdom, he takes over his wives and everything else in the process. 
And so this has all been predicted by Nathan when he says, because you did this, this will happen to you. You know, so, so you do have some of those, some of those things. Also, David wanted to put the ark in Jerusalem and build a temple and God wouldn't let him do it because he said there's been too much bloodshed. It was going to be Solomon, his son, who's going to be the one uh, to put together the ark. All right, so we've got the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's if I can get to it. Okay, so the good is he, be, he was formerly persecuted. He was a great warrior. He was militarily and politically very astute. He had a charismatic, charismatic personality. The north and the south both agreed to have him as king. He captured Jerusalem, which was a neutral area, and brought the ark there. And he normalized religious practices. And he really um, made worship of Yahweh something that was universal in Israel. The bad is he manipulated politics to achieve power. Uh, Bathsheba. He had the military draft and the census, which was also forbidden. He wasn't supposed to be able to take census. And uh, he didn't get to build the temple because there was too much blood. Yet, David did repent. He was chosen, and he would be the measure of all kings that would come after him. Even in Jesus' day, people would always say, son of David, you know, the house of David. And, and the idea there is that the, the monarchy had this sense of fulfillment with David as the, as the king. Okay. Let's look at Solomon. Oh, too many. Oh, I'm going to do it all over again. Sorry about that. Again, I tried to turn off the animations, but uh. okay, so Solomon wasn't supposed to be the one who would be king, but after Absalom was killed and you have all these other brothers and stuff, there was, there was a bit of a trickery that happened with Bathsheba and David. At David's deathbed, she talks him into naming um, Solomon as king. And then afterwards, Solomon goes through and systematically takes out the competition. And after he does that, he gets rid of his rivals and he consolidates power. But with Nathan and Bathsheba, those two conspired together on David's deathbed to get him to announce Solomon as his founder. Uh, Solomon is also considered the wise king. So, for example, 3,000 different proverbs, uh, 1,005 songs, plants and animals, because we see this in Psalm 72 and 127, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Wisdom, Proverbs, all those, even if they're not necessarily directly written by Solomon, they have him as the source. So this understanding of Solomon as being this wise king and one who... Uh, is cultured, educated, and wise, gets portrayed all the way uh, to the time of, uh, well, our current time. There's always this idea of Solomon in his wisdom. He was a good administrator, but he was a little oppressive to some degree. Uh, Not only did he wipe out the competition, uh, but he also heavily burdened the people that he was serving. 
and he would take people in and, and uh, uh, do forced labor. He had, uh, was it 3,000 wives or something like that? So I don't know what you're going to do with that many wives. I mean, but I think some of that they exaggerate for emphasis, you know, just saying he was, he was overly extravagant. But it also worked to be his downfall because as David was united in the worship of Yahweh, and the making sure that Israel was, was keeping their cultic practices pure, Solomon, with many of these different wives, he started allowing them to have their worship according to their gods. And then he started allowing different uh, pillars to be erected and different uh, places of cultic worship that weren't Yahwistic. And so because of that, he was condemned um, and but at the same, he's kind of like a mixed bag in those ways. But it was also only at, toward the end. It was like he started out great, but then as time goes by, he starts falling more and more and becoming more hedonistic and then losing his first love and losing, even though he's the wise one, he made a lot of stupid mistakes. Yeah. Who? Oh, David? No, okay. I, Solomon had a bunch. David had different wives as well. But at that time, polygamy was not considered a sin, per se. So you could have multiple wives, but when you were married, even if you had multiple wives, you couldn't sleep with someone else's wife. Because what David did is, David slept with Bathsheba, who was Uriah the Hittite's wife. So that was adultery. Why what? Why are there so many wives? Oh. You know, guys, I don't know how to answer that. So, (laughs) because they could, I think, is what, what the main reason. So the question, why did they have so many wives? In that culture at that time... Polygamy was considered something that was almost normal. Um, There were some practical reasons for it. Um, There were a lot of wars going on, and a lot of the men would die in war. And so you would have a lot of women who wouldn't have husbands because of that. And so there's that practical side. Um, The other side is if you had multiple wives, you were usually well off, and you would be able to take care of more wives And so there was somewhat of an economic benefit that goes to that. But probably a a combination of different things as well as they probably just wanted more wives. It's a way of, uh, what do you call that, opulence or something like that? Decadence. But it was never really considered the ideal to have all these different wives. But it was something that happened. And it was only later on that they started having this teaching that there's only one wife. But even, even so, I think the one wife... Uh, model was the ideal. So look at Genesis, for example. You know, it's kind of like this man, woman, one wife, one husband, ideal. Okay. Okay, did I get to the temple? Let's look at the temple. All right, Solomon built the temple. And the temple would be the... Um, the central location for worship for Israel. 
And what this did by building the temple and making this, this is where you do your sacrifices, is it changed a little bit the way that sacrifices used to be because the Levites used to be the ones who would do all these little family sacrifices. And then now that they're going to have a temple, they've codified the worship and the sacrifices where the priests of Aaron are the ones who are going to have more position and power with the sacrifices and the Levites are going to be more of the helpers rather than the ones who lead in little family uh, sacrifices. Also, there were different cities that had different shrines, and those different shrines from time to time would become suppressed so that the focus could be on the temple worship. Over time, the understanding was, and maybe by the time that they built this, is that where the the Ark of the Covenant is and where the uh, temple was, God himself resides. And so this is literally a connection with God himself. Incidentally, um, I don't know if any of you ever read, there's a a theologian and a Bible scholar by the name of N.T. Wright, and he talks about the the newness of Jesus as being the new temple. It doesn't mean that, you know, I'm the new temple and it's just kind of a metaphor. What he's talking about is since the old understanding was the temple was the one area that used to unite heaven and earth. Now that Jesus's body is that temple, that we are all united in heaven and earth through him and his body. So that's what it means when we're talking about the new temple. So it's not, it's not saying it metaphorically. It's saying it like actually, you know, so, but anyway, so keep that in mind that, that it's not just like, like, for example, when, when we have a church here, we have a tabernacle and we have the Eucharist in there and that's the true presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. And I I think we realize that. Um, But just because you go into a church, you wouldn't necessarily think that God's living literally in the church like that uh, to the degree that they would have thought the temple of of it like that. You know, so so anyway, they, they had this idea of sacredness of place as well as time now. All right, so they connected those two. Sacredness of time, that's the Sabbath, and that's also the feasts and different things. Sacredness of place is the land, because the land itself is holy. And then the temple is kind of the center for that. And so they would do sacrifices, and they would do worship there. And they had this all codified in a way that people had an obligation to come to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifice and worship. This continues, by the way, back in the time of Jesus' day as well. There's going to be an a interruption of this, of course, with the Babylonian exile. 587 uh, B.C., the uh, Babylonians come in. They wipe out the temple and destroy it. And then it's going to be another 50 years before they get to come back and rebuild the temple. And so this is the beginning of the temple that um, would have started in about 930 or somewhere in that range. And it will have lasted for about, what, 400 years? 300 and something years? 350 years? My math isn't so good. Do they tie a rope around their leg or something? Not that I know of. Did you hear that somewhere? Did you hear that somewhere? Oh, it's a legend. Okay. Then I better tie a rope around my leg when I come. <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, that, that may be the case. I don't know. <laughs> so here you've got, this is the big altar where they do the sacrifices. You, the Holy of Holy is in the very back 
and in the middle. And then you have a big veil that'd be here. You'd have these altars of incense, tables where they would do these different like grain and, and uh, uh, fruit sacrifices and that sort of thing in here too. And then you'd have the uh, courts. It's like the great outer court, the upper and inner court. The molten sea was for purification. There'd be water and stuff in there. Okay, so now I'm going to show you. Uh, or this one's a little better. It's a little picture, but I realize it's a little far away. But see, they were doing the sacrifices there. There's the four corners they would call horns. And then um, from there, they'd go up and offer sacrifice. Here's the priest going up to the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice. They'd burn incense. And this is for purification. They would have ones down there too. It's, it's kind of hard to find a good picture of Solomon's temple because a lot of what you get are, it, they knew a lot about the temple at the time of Jesus. And so that one, there's a lot of models and representatives for the, the temple in Solomon's. Um, they have some different theories, but this is the most common. You know, so you've got a bit of a raised front and then you've got the uh, inner court and you've got the gold you know, played with the wood. And by the way, who do you think built the temple? Think about it. Jews weren't really, they weren't necessarily the uh, construction uh, geniuses of the ancient world. You know, they were herders and they were farmers. And so they got the Phoenicians to come in to help them to do that. Okay. How did I miss it? There's another cutout. Same sort of thing. It's just a different uh, angle. Sometime when you're bored, rather than me trying to describe everything, go online and do a search for Solomon's Temple and make sure you don't get some weird Masonic site or something, but just go to uh, like a Bible kind of website and where you'll you'll find a description of these different things and, and what they do. And it's, uh, um, you know, you, you can find that. What's the big platform? The molten sea, that's for purification. Well, I don't think people would get in it so much. They would use it to purify different vessels. and Yeah, yeah, they would. I think it was purifying their vessels and their... Um, yeah, and they, they probably did use it for, well, incidentally that this whole idea of the molten sea thing, it, it shows up again in the book of revelation when they talk about the sea of glass, that they think that what they're talking about with this new heavenly Jerusalem, it's like the new temple. And, uh, so that a lot of the symbolism comes from the original temple of Solomon. So, but yeah, the, this is just for purifications and things. Okay, we're going to move on. But as you know, Solomon didn't last forever. And uh, when he died, he, remember he was pretty oppressive to the people. He, he would uh, do for, forced labor. He heavily taxed them. And he was uh, applying somewhat of, of a burden on them. And so when it was... When he died, then it was time for a new king. And uh, Rehoboam decides he's going to get advice. And he gets advice from different people. And the elders were saying, look, you got to lighten up a little bit. 
um, that Solomon was a little too harsh. The people are a little too burdened, and we need to lighten the load. So think about it, for example, if we had like an 80% tax. Everything we do, we're working for the government and everything else, and then all of a sudden, you're getting a new uh, president coming in or a new governor or whatever, and then at the time you're thinking, boy, we've got to change this tax code. It's killing us. And then, uh, and then the governor says, not only am I not going to change it, I'm going to raise it. So this is what Rehoboam does. He says, you know, like Solomon, you think Solomon was bad. I've got more in my little finger, you know. And so he, he kind of takes the advice of a younger um, counsel and he ignores the counsel of the elders. By the way, you know, in this world and culture that we live in, where people think that if you're about 25, you're the perfect age and you know everything. And uh, those are the ones you see on TV. They're always the smartest ones. They're always the best doctors and they're always the best lawyers. And, and uh, they make it seem like if you're 25 or between 20 and 30, you're kind of in that magic age. And uh, you've got the world at your feet. Well, that was very foreign to uh, the ancient world. The ancient world had this, this real respect for the elders. And so by not listening to the elders and not respecting the elders, then that was a real uh, shaming type of action. Um, let me give you one example of that. Uh, there's one point where Elisha, the prophet, he's walking down the street and there are some kids off into the woods and they start yelling, Hey, Baldy! Hey, Baldy! So they're making fun of him, right? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> but a bear comes down and eats up the kids. So anyway, the, uh, there's a moral behind that though. The moral isn't, you know, okay, kids, bears are going to get you. The idea there is you have to respect elders. You have to respect authority because if you don't respect authority, you don't respect elders, you know, the world's going to go, you know, to the pot, you know, it's going to go downhill. And, uh, and so by having Rehoboam, for example, taking the advice of the younger is symbolic of not only arrogance, but, but foolishness. Because he's not taking the counsel of the wise elders. You know, by the way, the prophets, they think they shaved their heads. And so that's why Elijah was bald. He may have been actually bald, but it also was because uh, many of the prophets had this thing where they would shave their heads. Eh, a little trivia. Okay. Because he took the advice of the younger, the ten tribes in the north said, forget it, we're out of here. We're going to start our own kingdom. And so Rehoboam now has two tribes. The kingdom of Judah is now in the south, and then the kingdom of Israel is in the north. So here's part of the problem. In the south, they still have the Davidic line. So the kings that are going to come until the fall, um, they're all in the line of David. Because of that, they all have a certain pressure that they have to behave a certain way, act a certain way, and they have to continue the Davidic practice and worship that the king himself has. So there's a certain unity that comes in the south that doesn't happen in the north. In the north, whoever is king is just basically the next coup. And so it has to do with who's got the power and who's got the... Uh, the ability and the political uh, astuteness. Whereas in the South, there's, there's at least more stability in that way because there's a line of succession that goes back to David himself. Okay. 
somewhere there was this book of the annals of the king of Israel, because they keep mentioning it over and over in the book of Kings. And uh, what's, what's interesting about that is we don't know what that book was. So if you ever see that, you know, as it is explained and mentioned in the book of the annals of the king of Jew- I mean, it would have been nice if we had that book, you know, because it would give us a lot of good historical resources, but we don't. It's been lost to history. Okay, there's a bit of a pattern that happens from this point on, from Solomon on. There are exceptions to the rule, but you'll hear this, Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. So in other words, you've got these different kings that come, and one after another, instead of following the ways of David in the positive sense, they fall into sin, they, they become idolaters, they, um, they don't follow proper Um, protocols, they're breaking the law, and so uh, because of that, they're harshly um, evaluated by the author of Kings. By the way, the the different uh, books, Deuteronomy, um, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, and 1 and 2 Kings, they consider Deuteronomistic, you know, so basically there's a similar pattern in all of those, those books. The exception to this is the book of Ruth, um, which does come into the mix there. But the, the thing about Ruth is that it's, it's kind of a newer work, even though it's talking about a time that was older. You know, but, but basically, when you're reading the Old Testament, you've got a big, huge, long uh, section of all these different books that have the same style, and it's written in the same type of theological um, style, I guess. Not to use the word too much. All right, there's the divided kingdom. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about prophets, but I think I missed... Intermission. Oh, geez. This thing has a mind of its own. Post-Solomon. By the way, Jeroboam, he was the one who was anointed king in the north. And then Jehoboam, he was the one who was king in the south. But there were no real lines of succession in the north. And so when you're reading the book of Kings, it almost has this parallel thing that's going. Uh, For those of you who have a New Jerusalem Bible with the footnotes in it, there's a great section at the back of it where you've got these timeline histories where it shows what was happening in the north and what was happening in the south, which prophets were prophesying in the north and which ones were prophesying in the south. And you just kind of follow the timelines down, and it's kind of a nice little guide. It gives you a bit of a historical grounding in that. All right, so let's talk a little bit about prophets. Um, prophecy is also something that developed to a certain degree. There were always prophets, like even at the time of uh, Moses, there were prophets. Um, In the simplest sense, what a prophet does is it tells the people what they need to hear, what God wants them to hear. Um, We think of prophets as being someone who tells the future, but uh, that's not what a prophet is primarily supposed to do. What the prophet is primarily supposed to do is read the sign of the times and tell the people what God wants them to hear. In the, the ancient, ancient world, because it's not like only Israel had prophets. They were considered prophets 
of other religions. So the Canaanites, the Mesopotamians, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, Assyrians, uh, Hittites, even the Egyptians, uh, they had prophets. The Greeks had prophets. They had oracles. So it's not like it was something totally new to Israel. But what was new to Israel is that the way that they were prophets was much different. They didn't engage in the occultic practices. Okay, so so in the... Uh, I told you about the hole in the ground one, right? So, so that was one way that some of the ancients used to do it. They would try to call up the dead to try to, like what we would call channeling, for example. That would be something. They also had astrology. This probably doesn't surprise you. You know, the uh, Babylonians, for example, were very good, very good uh, astrologers. You know, but they not only knew these different things with the, the sky, but they would interpret the using astrological charts, they would try to predict what was going to happen in the future, or they would try to divine uh, decisions based on the stars. And they would have all kinds of theories for doing that. Um, That one we're probably a little familiar with. So here's one you may not know. Um, Reading of livers. I don't know. You You don't see a lot of people who are engaged in New Age doing this. But what they would do is they would take a liver, and they would try to read the liver... And they would try to find if there were any omens contained in their reading the liver. Kind of like people read palms, you know. So they would take a liver out of an animal and then they would try to um, divine based on that liver. They, uh, they would have ecstasies and sometimes they would do different things. Um, when the priests of Baal for, Baal, for example, when Elijah was uh, mocking them basically... Um, they were in ecstasies. So they were trying to get themselves so worked up and they were slashing themselves. And, and so one of the, one of the, for the word prophet, they think that one of the meanings is one who works him or her up, self up into an ecstasy. You know, that, that was something that, that the prophets used to do. And that was a, a description of the word itself. Um, dreams. That's probably not so surprising. Um, people would interpret dreams. That would be another way that they would, they would be prophets. Here's another strange one. Animal anomalies. So, for example, if you, have a, uh, if you have a sheep that's born as an albino, it's like, whoa, this has something to say. And so they would interpret. They'd have these people that would interpret those different stillbirths. And uh, if you had a calf that was born with more legs or something like that, then, you know, that would be something. In, in some respects, what... The Babylonians did. They liked that one, you know, so they used to use that one all the time. But basically, people would use what was around them. They would take their, they would take cups of wine and, and they would pour a little oil in it and they would try to read the, you know, read the uh, oil being poured into the wine and stuff. They, they would use whatever was in front of them and they would try to uh, use that as oracles and things. And, and sometimes people would, would just say things, you know, in just random, strange ways. And so, so anyway, that's what happened. But with Israel, it was, uh, it was a little different. It's because a prophet in Israel had to proclaim the word that was received in a small voice. And it wasn't through acts of nature. And it wasn't by using occultic practices. So this is the main difference. You might remember when Elijah was up on the, the hill of Mount Carmel. Now, you guys are probably needing a break now, right? No? It's been an hour. Has it or no? Yeah, it's been an hour. Are you okay? 
You sure? Yeah? I'm all right. I'm okay. All right, I'll go a little longer. So Elijah, he's, he's up on the mountain. And uh, while he's there, he's hiding from Ahab. And he's hiding because he went and confronted the uh, priests of Baal and all of Israel because they were following these uh, occultic practices of the religion of Baal worship, B-A-A-L. And um, not only the not only the, the priests of Baal were, were there, but many of the Israelites were following after it. And, uh, and the king was allowing it to happen, which he shouldn't have been. And part of that was because he had wives who were from Canaanite countries or areas. So what he ends up doing is he says, so, you know what, we'll do a little competition. Uh, I'll build a little area here and you build area over there and whatever God comes down and lights this on fire. He's the true God. And so anyway, they start doing their little dances and, and they're slashing themselves and they're trying everything in their power to get this, this, um, all these logs and everything that they put in to, to become inflamed, but nothing happens. And so then, then, uh, Elijah starts mocking them. Well, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he went to the bathroom. Maybe your God went to the bathroom. Maybe you need to call him, you know, do it louder, you know? And so he's mocking them. And then after that, then you just have Elijah who says a little prayer, but before he says the prayer, he pours water all over it and it makes it impossible for it to happen basically. And then he, and then he just does a prayer and God comes down and, you know, and, and, uh, then he takes advantage of the moment and, uh, says, Hey, uh, why don't we just kill off all these prophets of Baal right now. And so they did. They, they took all the prophets of Baal and, and got rid of them, killed them on the spot. And then as that happened, now Elijah runs because he knows that, that the king's not going to be happy. And so he runs and goes to this mountain. He's hiding away, which makes you wonder why he's hiding, right? He just did this huge, powerful thing where God showed his strength. And then afterwards he runs off and hides but anyway, he does. He's human, I guess. And the king's after him. And while he's there, he's praying. And you've got these different manifestations that come. You, you all remember this, right? You know, there was the storm that came. You know, and then there was the lightning. And then you had the wind. And then you had the rain. And I don't I mean, just, but all these, they're basically natural, storming, power, weather type occurrences that happen. And then every, after each one of those, but God was not in the storm, but God was not in the wind. You know, he was not in the hurricane or the, uh, earthquake and, you know, all these natural occurrences. And then all of a sudden there's a small, still voice. God was in the small, still voice. Now there's a teaching that goes with that. The understanding is that those Canaanite gods and all those pagans around them, it's like they're nature worshipers. And so they see their gods in the elements and in acts of nature. And so it was natural for those who were into Baal worship uh, to be um, thinking that the gods would be in storms and lightning and earthquakes and all this sort of thing. God is not that kind of God. He is not in storms, earthquakes, and, and hurricanes and things like that. 
God is in the small, soft voice. And so a prophet, he receives the word of God who speaks in that small, still voice so that the prophet can take that, receive it, and then proclaim it. You know, so, so there is that teaching. It, it, it's contrasting what happens in Israel as opposed to what happens in the other countries around. You know, so God is in the still, small voice. Um, prophets in Israel, they don't just proclaim only with words. I mean, we think of that way. I mean, don't we? So like the first thing you think of when you think of the prophets in Israel is that they would go and they'd go out and they'd say what God needs people to hear. And they would say that. Yes, oftentimes and probably more often they would use words, but they did other things as well. Sometimes they use metaphors. For example, uh, in Hosea, it's uh, one of the prophets. He had a wife who was a prostitute. And so what God was saying is, here is how you tell Israel that they are prostituting themselves, you know, by your wife. And you have to stay married to her, you know. By the way, she had a lovely name. Her name was Gomer. So, so if you're looking for biblical names for your grandkids, don't pick Gomer. But it was funny because Gomer Pyle came later, but that was a guy. So, but has anyone ever known another Gomer? That's the only one I know is Gomer Pyle. Oh, well, that's a tangent. So we don't worry about that. All right, but sometimes it's metaphors, you know, that, that they will have examples that they do. Um, sometimes it'll be different actions. Like Jeremiah, for example, at one point, he takes all these clay jars and then smashes them. You know, well, that's a demonstration of what will happen. So it's, a, it, it's an action that Jeremiah does. And so that action is a prophecy. And sometimes you can get yes and no answers. This is kind of like the, uh, um, what they call the Urim and the Thummim. You know, so they would cast lots. And sometimes when they would look for a yes or no answer, they would do that. And actually, even the apostles did that at one point. I always wonder, it's like they had, they had uh, let's see, Matthias and, uh, was it Bartholomew? But they cast lots to see who was going to be the replacement for Judas because they wanted to have the symbolic restoration of the 12. And after that, it's not like you had to have 12 apostles forever, you know, because obviously as, as more and more uh, bishops were ordained for the cities, they greatly outnumbered that. But it was just a symbolic restoration that happens at the 12 there. But they cast lots. So I always figure that, you know, oh, the poor loser, you know, he's like, dang, I was just a... If the, if the coin would have been tossed differently, I would have won. But oh well. I'm sure God loves them and blessed them just the same. Okay, I mentioned this also. That, uh, let's see. That prophets and kings, they, they think that they developed almost like is a split. So in the old days when you had judges, you would have the judges who would be raised up. And they would be the ones who would proclaim things, and then they would be the military leaders, but God would be the king. And Well, once you have the monarchy, it seems like a lot of these institutions started to to split off a little bit. And so most prophets were not freelancers. Most prophets actually worked with the king, and they were actually in the court of the king. And they'd be considered like we would consider a prime minister or something like that. So you'd have the king, and you'd have the prophet— or prophets, or the court of prophets, and they would all work together. 
the king would be in charge of a lot of the administration and the war and all this. And the prophets would be in charge of trying to discern God's will. And also to be a check and a balance against the government. So it's funny, we don't think about this that often because we always say separation of church and state. Well, that's an American thing, obviously, but um, it also goes back to enlightenment ideals. But we can have a problem if the state has no checks and balances. You know, for example, if you have a president and then he has no Congress or anything like that, then all of a sudden the president has no checks and balances. Well, even more so in the in the medieval, in the Middle Ages and stuff, the, the kings began to have extremely powerful positions. And so when you have the bishops um, that were there as well, there were some checks and balances that happened there. And so when we look back into the Middle Ages, we don't often think about it in this way because people say, well, look at those bishops. They were acting like they were princes and they were all caught up in the secular world and this and that. But there was a certain benefit that happened as well. Because if you let a king just go wild on his own without any checks and balances, then the king just becomes a tyrant. You know, and if you have, if you have the king and the prophet, then you've got some sort of checks and balances that can happen there. And so at this time in Israel, this is what's going on. And oftentimes the kings hated those prophets. And it was like when... Uh, I'm trying to think with uh, which one it was. Hezekiah or something like that. I don't know. I, I shouldn't say because I can't remember right now. But I remember one whining. Is, there was a certain prophet and he goes, he goes, I hate you. All you do is give me bad prophecies. I just want something good. Can you just give me a good prophecy? Something positive? You know, and so oftentimes the prophets would kind of look for the things that, uh, that were needing to be challenged. And so sometimes they didn't necessarily have the best... Um, best outlook in, in the eyes of the king, you know. So it's not like they always worked hand in hand. Uh, Isaiah, for example, was in the court of the king. Uh, Jeremiah kind of was, but he, uh, um, he ended up getting into some problems, if you remember, when he got thrown in the pit. But mud pit, and he's sinking, and he's like, God, why did you make me prophet? So prophets interpret the times also, and so they have to proclaim what... God needs people to hear. You've heard me say that over and over again, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the idea. All right, so, so when you think of prophets, don't think so much about predicting the future, but telling the people in the present what they need to hear. All right, now we're looking at Elijah. Yeah. We have prophets, but it's a different institution. The last prophets that came about, basically, when you had the king in Israel, you would have the prophets that would be there. And then when you had the fall in 587 of the, um, well, of uh, Israel, Jerusalem, and they deported all the people. They deported the, the kings, the prophets, and the nobles, and the rich people. And, uh, and it was 50 years that they started coming back. And when they first came back, the, uh, the temple that they rebuilt, they put a Davidic king in there. And so they still had prophets up until that time. Um, what ended up happening, though, is that the Persians didn't like the idea that the Jews were potentially putting a Davidic king back in place. And so they made sure that didn't happen. And so that's the end of the prophecy. That would have been about four, um, let's see, 
430 or something like that. So basically, that was kind of the end of the prophetic tradition. There were other things that came. You know, they had the wisdom literature. You had, um, you know, books like Daniel and Job and, and all those sort of things. So there were prophetic elements, but you didn't have that institution of prophet anymore like they used to. That's why when John the Baptist came up on the scene, people were excited because, wow, this is like a real prophet like the old days. And so they hadn't had prophets for hundreds of years. Now, not to get too far ahead of ourselves because we'll talk about it in the New Testament, but um, all of us are prophets. A follower of Christ is a prophet. We've got three things that we're our. We're a priest, we're a prophet, and we're a king. That's because we are in the ministry of Jesus's priesthood, whether that's the priesthood of priesthood priest or the priesthood of all believers. All of us are called to live out that priesthood of Christ, which is priest, prophet, and king. A uh, priest is the one who intercedes and um, you know offers um, sacrifices and um, on behalf of others. The uh, prophet is the one who proclaims the gospel. The uh, King is one who governs what they have with godly authority, you know, being good stewards of what we've been entrusted to. So we have those three, what they call the triple munera. So part of our baptism, actually, they talk about it specifically in the rite of baptism, baptized priest, prophet, and king. And we put chrism oil on the baby or the adult as a sign that goes back to those consecrated institutions of priests, prophets, and kings. They were all consecrated. All right, that was a little longer answer than you're probably looking for. <laughs> so, Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Elijah. First of all, Elijah does miracles. All right, so there had been miracles in the past. But, you know, you think about the Red Sea and, you know, Moses and all this sort of thing. But now you've got Elijah who comes on the scene and he's doing miracles as well. And there are 17 of them. He's fed by ravens. Uh, he's got the uh, flower in the water that multiplies. You've got the widow's son's resurrection, you know, so the, her son was, um, dead. He goes up and he lays on him and breathes. You remember breath is like the spirit. He breathes the spirit back into him. So he comes back to life. And so you've got all these great, uh, uh, miracles that happen. Then you've got the, uh, Ahab and Elijah. This is that. Remember when I was talking about the the prophets and the kings and the tension that that often caused? Well, Ahab, although he was a king of Israel, he did not behave like a king should behave. And he was taking all these different Canaanite practices and allowing that to happen in the land of Israel, which is sacred. You know, so, so this is something that Elijah is constantly challenging. And, and it was the... The idea of the that wood and who's going to consume and offer, you know, this uh, oblation. You know, is it going to be the gods of Baal or is it going to be, you know, God who's going to be the powerful one? And in the end, it was the uh, uh, the, the real God. You know, that was that was a demonstration that what the Israelites were doing with the Canaanite gods was wrong and against what God wanted them to be doing in the first place. Um. There was also Jezebel. You ever heard of Jezebel? So Jezebel, she's kind of a symbolic figure as well. Because she is a, um, 
well, Phoenician, really, but with the, uh, uh, the gods and the style of a Canaanite. But she comes over into the king's house, and he, she not only dwells there, but she brings her own priests and is allowed uh, to, to offer sacrifices and worship. And so this is what Elijah was against. By the way, it's like I'm trying to remember, is it Psalm, Psalm 45? So there's a Psalm 45, and in this psalm, you've got the, um, the, the queen, and you've got all of her maidens, and they're coming into the court, and it's saying, you know, leave your old gods and your old ways and come and be, you know, a good, king, good queen. And um, usually that gets connected to the Virgin Mary, actually, or it gets connected to Israel. And, but in its historical sense, it may have been Jezebel. So just for kicks, sometimes go, go back and read Psalm 45 and think, could this be talking about what happened when Jezebel actually came in to the uh, monarchy? I mean, into the court as king? It's interesting. So anyway, Jezebel, though, became symbolic of one who was corrupting Israelite worship and ways. In the end, she was condemned. Um, but what's interesting, though, she goes up on the balcony and before she, before she gets stoned, basically, and dragged out in the street eaten by dogs, uh, she puts makeup on. I think that's kind of an interesting little highlight, right? So at least she looked good. <laughs> but, yeah, she's up in the, she's like, well, okay, I might have to go, but I'm going to look good. So she puts on her makeup. So, all right, after a while, you've got not only Elijah but there are other prophets, and now they're starting to be um, kind of like a, a band of prophets, almost like a clan of them. And now they're somewhat independent from the king because they're, they're, they're prophets and they're, they're working outside of the, the court. And so this is when Elisha... Okay, so te- let me just tell you. Technically, you've got Elijah and Elisha. So with the J and then with the S. So I always say Elisha just because it, it's easier to understand. You know, so I'll say Elijah and then Elisha instead of Elijah and Elisha because it sounds so similar. But technically it should be Elisha and Elisha. <laughs> so anyway, just so you know. Okay, so, so he goes and he anoints Elisha. And so God tells Elijah to go and anoint Elisha. And so Elisha left to say goodbye to his family so he could come back and follow Elijah. Now, where this comes back, do you remember when Jesus was saying, um, no, well, someone wanted to follow Jesus and he was saying, um, let me go say goodbye to my family first. And then Jesus says, um, or let me go bury my father. Let the dead bury their dead. You know, let me go finish my business. You know, oh, you know, one who uh, sets his hand to the plow and turns back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. You know, and so basically Jesus was using a parallel that goes back to this. So Elisha was allowed to go back and say goodbye to his family and everything. And Jesus is saying the gospel is so important and so immediately that you have to respond now and you can't put it off. That was basic, Jesus' basic teaching, but it goes back to this event. Okay. Then you got Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. Got dogs in the city and birds in the open. 
Well, anyway, there was, uh, and, and this tells more than just, you know, what a prophet does, but there was this vineyard and the person who owned the vineyard wanted to keep it. But Ahab, the king, was talked into it by that Jezebel to go and, and demand to take that vineyard over. And so, so he kind of manipulates and does it in a way that is wrong, evil, oppressive. Now, what's interesting, though, is it talks about the sacredness of the land and how even though Ahab was willing to pay him money and everything else, Naboth was saying, no, this is... This is the family's vineyard in our land. We, we can't give our land away. And we don't have that same sense of the land like they did. But I think we can imagine what it was like. Um, we can see over in Israel to this day, you know, how, you know, you think, why don't those Palestinians just give it up? You know, why do they, why do they feel like they own it? You know, and why do they, you know, why can't they just, you know, take some money and find different land or something like that? And it's like, because the land itself there's such an attachment to someone's identity with the land itself that they can't let go of it. And so by taking someone's land, it's almost like taking their wife or something, you know, it's, it was considered like a huge crime. And so of course, you know, Alicia confronts him on that. In the end, you've got Elijah who goes up into heaven and you've got this brotherhood of prophets and, and they're, they're waiting, you know, and watching this happen. But that chariot of fire thing, have you ever heard about Elijah's chariots of fire and all this kind of stuff? And so it just kind of goes up into heaven. For that reason, by the way, that, that it's, um, the, the, the teaching was that Elijah has to come back before the Messiah comes. And the reason is because he didn't actually die when you, when you read it in its literal sense. Because Elijah's doing great, everything's wonderful, and then all of a sudden he takes off and he takes this fiery chariot into heaven, and, and it's implied in that that he never actually really died, so he's with God. So therefore, he can come back, as opposed to the other prophets and kings who died. So there was that connection that they had, and that's why when Jesus was talking about Elijah, and they were saying, well, wait, doesn't Elijah have to come back first? And so Jesus said that he did come back in the person of John the Baptist, so it doesn't mean that um, Elijah reincarnated himself into John the Baptist, but he comes in the style and the example and the persona of John the Baptist. That's why John the Baptist was dressed the way he was. He had the camel hair and he had the little uh, rope around him and this sort of thing. He comes in the style and likeness of Elijah. And so therefore, Jesus is saying he is the Elijah. You have to be a little more metaphorical and poetic about it, not literal. But then when they asked John the Baptist, did you notice when they said, are you Elijah? He goes, no, I'm not Elijah. He said, well, Jesus said you were. Well, that's because John the Baptist is saying, I'm not literally Elijah. You know, but he does say, I, have, I am the voice in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And so he's doing the work of Elijah. And he's a prophet in the style and likeness of Elijah. All right. Elijah is considered, by the way, the greatest of the prophets. And so if you... If you if someone ever asks you this question, who is the greatest prophet uh, that, uh, in the uh, history of Israel? Then your answer would probably be Elijah, even though other ones had longer works and books and did different things. But Elijah is kind of that golden era as well. Just like David is the golden era of kings, Elijah is the golden, uh, like the golden era of the prophets and the band of prophets. So that Elijah, Elisha that you read in, in First and Second Kings is uh, pretty powerful stuff. It's considered kind of that um, 
It all goes back to there in a sense. All right. And that's why he's coming back. And even, even in, uh, even in this, um, like the second coming, they talk about Elijah. He, he gets thrown in a lot of different times, but it's for that reason. And sometimes in the, the Bible, it doesn't say something exclusively. And so people will extrapolate, you know, like the Melchizedek thing I was talking about, since it doesn't talk about him having a beginning or an end, it doesn't say he was born or he died. Maybe he's an eternal priesthood and that's the priesthood of Jesus. So, which predates the priesthood of Aaron, and therefore it has precedence over Aaron's priesthood, which is dated, had a beginning, and it has an end. Anyway, I'm not going to lose you on all this stuff, so I'll stop. But <laughs> Okay, so Elisha gets the cloak, and he asks for a double portion of the spirit. All right, that's a good thing to ask for, I guess. You ever, you ever wonder, like, when people say, it's like, you have one wish. And then, like with Solomon, he had one wish, right? And he wished that he would be wise. And so that was a good thing to ask for. And so, because of that, he was blessed. In a similar way, Elisha asks for a double portion of the Spirit. And he is blessed because of that. If you'll notice that a lot of the greatest miracles that you see didn't actually happen with Elijah, but they happened more with Elisha. And... There were, uh, oh, I talked about that one. Number three, don't mess with the man. That was the bears coming off the, coming down from the hill and, and uh, mauling the kids who were making fun of the prophet. Don't mess with the prophet. By the way, Noah, when, uh, when he was, afterwards he got drunk. Okay, so Noah was the first vine dresser. And uh, so he made a bunch of wine and then he drank and got drunk. And then he was laying laying naked, and one of his sons came in and saw him naked and then went and made fun of him to the other brothers. And so then later on, the other brothers came in and then Noah cursed the, uh, the one who made fun of him, basically. And, uh, and it seems like, well, that's kind of harsh. I mean, he was drunk and he was naked. Wouldn't you make kind of kid around a little bit? And, this? and in our mindset, we think, well, that, there must have been something more that happened there. And so I've heard like these elaborate theories about, well, actually the youngest son went in and slept with his wife and then, you know, and they're making up all this stuff. But what really happened there is you don't mess with the prophet. You don't mess with the elder. And so you can't even make fun of them. And, and it's showing that, that great respect. Here, Noah is this great patriarch, you know, and what son in his right mind would make fun of his dad like that when he's the patriarch, Noah? You know, so it's just getting that point across that, that people who God appoints and sets as patriarchs and prophets, you have to respect that because it's respecting um, God himself. So anyway, the same thing happens with Elisha there. So you've got Elisha who is being disrespected. And, and the story is just, it, it's not really even a story about, you know, God will get you if you do something wrong. It's just saying we need to respect true prophets. And since Elisha was a true prophet... He should be respected. Therefore, don't make fun of bald prophets. Or bald people in general. I think that's what it was saying, right? (laughs) All right. So again, we have uh, multiplication of oil. We have raising of the sun. The same thing, the breathing. The uh, multiplication of loaves. Um, There was another one that's kind of... I love this one too. There's Naaman, the the Syrian, from uh, northeast... So, 
Naaman had leprosy, and he came to Elisha because he heard he was able to do all these miracles. So, hey, he's a healer. And uh, Naaman was uh, someone who had some means about him. And he wasn't the king, but he was pretty high up in the court. So he comes to Elisha, and he says, I hear you're, the, I hear you're this great uh, prophet and a healer, and I've got leprosy. Do you think you could heal me? And so then Elisha says, yeah, just go and bathe in the uh, Jordan River seven times. And so Naaman, he's like, huh. it's like, I came all the way down here for that. You know, and so he goes back, I got cleaner and better rivers up in the areas around Syria than this stinky Jordan River that's all muddy and, you know. So he goes off and then he must have been telling some of his friends saying, you know, I was, yeah, the stupid prophet down there in Israel. And and then all of a sudden his friends are saying, you know what? What's it going to hurt? He does miracles. Listen to him. Go down there and bathe seven times. So... So he swallows his pride, goes back, bathes seven times, and his leprosy leaves him. So anyway, but there's symbolic meaning in that as well. You know, the waters of the Jordan, the Holy Land, you know, that there's something about that that, that doesn't meet the eye, that it's, it's greater than people realize. And so you go to Israel, you look around, you're like, it looks like California, you know. But, but in, the, uh, in the real scheme of things, God chose a particular land, a particular people, and he is revealing himself through that land and people. Sometimes people call it the scandal of particularity. And that means, why did God choose the Jews? He didn't have to. He could have chose the Chinese or, you know, anyone else. Ancient Oregonians. But he chose the Jews. So. Okay. Now we're going to take a break. So it's 7.30. So I'll give you 10 minutes. You can... You can go around, check out the church. The bathrooms are here on the left. Stretch. And we'll be right back. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.